Hi. Hi. Can y'all hear me? I'm going to speak in this timber because it's far less annoying. (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a Billy Corgan wannabe. That sounds good. That's that's about right. Yeah. That's your normal voice. Special. That's what we should roll with. Yeah. Let me open this before we... Oh, I was going to edit it right before JR jumps into the Billy Corgan thing and have that be the first thing people hear. <laughs> I'm a Billy Corgan. <laughs> please do. Yes, please. If they know me, they know it's true. Right. <laughs> so I can't even open up a, uh, a web browser on my other screen without it popping up the GeForce Now FPS counter. So apparently Firefox gets 29 frames per second. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, right? It's important to know. How are you guys doing today, though? You good? For all fake podcast purposes, great. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm doing fantastic, whether or not it's fa- fake podcast purposes. Did you all have a good Halloween, though? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we ran out of candy and had to run inside and hide. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I was kind of hoping to get this one out sooner, but like you guys know, I ended up kind of coming down with a little something, so... Yeah. Okay. Well, so something not to do. Podcast. <laughs> We're back at it now. You know, um, for for listeners joining us today, this is a movie buff romance. We are re-entering the Matrix with the Matrix Reloaded. But I'm Bob. I'm Rick. And I'm Jr. And yeah, we're here with uh, 2003's The Matrix Reloaded, a, a hefty two hours and eighteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It is I'm hefty, really isn't it? it? It is. It feels like, I mean, we have two huge action sequences, and yes. it kind of has a bit of that two-part trilogy problem you'll get with, like, you know, Back to the Future 2 and 3 or Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, where it feels like one big story cut into two halves. Yeah. And, of course, the pacing issues that kind of go along with that, where the audience doesn't necessarily want to hear the story They want to see all the fun fight sequences in the case of something like um, Empire or Matrix Reloaded. Right. And like those, it is a bit kinder on the rewatch. It it is a lot of, um, (laughs) I told you that story so I could tell you this one. But um, we'll get into the the proper synopsis and layout here. I just want to, just before we get rolling, we're going to refer to the real world here, meaning I assume Zion and the reality outside the Matrix. Yes. And then something happening in the simulation, we'll say the Matrix instead of. So when we say in the Matrix, we're not referring, you know, to the first film. For consistency's sake, we're referring to the simulation world. Yeah, that simulated reality. Yeah, and um, at the end of the last one, I did say I gave this one initially a two out of five based off my memories, and I came mm-hmm. back into it with a fresh head, kind of expecting a step up in quality, expecting it to be better than I remembered. So. And it is. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll oh, get okay. uh, you know we'll get to the reactions and, and scene by scene stuff, but sure. it's better than I remembered. And the problems I have with it upon this viewing are less numerous and different than the problems I thought I had with it. Okay, I can agree with that statement wholeheartedly. Far fewer problems with the movie as you know as time progressed, and I went back and rewatched it. Um, I had no clue what was going on as a teenager. (laughs) Yeah. This, you know, the first movie was definitely marketed as, yes, it's violent, but it's something that's like. Heady. Yeah. And bring the whole family because there's something for everybody to enjoy. 
the sequels are not something for everybody to enjoy. You have to pay attention. You have to understand what went through, what Neo, excuse me, went through with the first movie to come into the second one six months later. Definitely. And I'm not the kind of guy who who has a really tough time getting engrossed in the film or maintaining my attention span. But even during this, there were some parts where I kind of like took a sideways glance at my phone, like, well, I wonder what's going on on Twitter right now. <laughs> right. Wait, are we talking about 2003? <laughs> yeah, what was Twitter? More so now. Though there was a literal bird outside my house, and for some reason it was calling my phone. And I was like, oh, there's a Twitter going on. Okay. Mm-hmm. money. But, um, I mean, this movie, like the one before, it gets right to it. Like, Yes. They forego opening credits. You have our title card. We're in the code. And like the first one, and there's a lot of symmetry going on here. The, the movie plays a lot with the Matrix Reloaded as a concept. We start off with Trinity being a badass. Wait, the and first we're not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not quite sure exactly what Trinity's doing, but we see her being a badass, a quick transition, and her confronting and being shot by an Asian while dramatically falling out of a window. Uh, and we find out that's a dream Neo was having while he was asleep on the Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. This dream is very important. It definitely sets up Neo's path from the beginning of this movie and sets up his decision-making process all the way through to the end of the movie. Yeah, the whole time he has this in his mind, and in any moment he spends with Trinity, he's got this on his brain of her being shot and her being in danger. And it does kind of work, like I said, with like sort of it kind of rhymes with the first movie, where the first movie is about the prophecy of the one being fulfilled. This one's kind of about, you know, Neil having this own prophecy in his head of, of Trinity's death. And it sticks with all of us throughout the film. We're like, hmm. Yeah, it kind of hangs movie? over us. And we're kind of curious as to what she's going to be doing and like what happens between those two bits of action. Yeah, and the audience doesn't know it in this first scene, but it's another fantastic misdirect on the part of the writers. Oh yeah, they're they're playing some games in this one. Mm-hmm. It is kind of about, to a degree, subverting expectations, and we're we're taken to uh, the the cockpit of the Nebuchadnezzar where we see Morpheus along with the new operator uh, Link, who's played by Harold Perrineau, who's a fantastic actor, and he was in one of my my favorite and most iconic TV shows. I'm of course talking about Oz. <laughs> uh... Which shares the same letter. And oh, with the show, Lost. Oh, you talk Whoa! about Lost. Talk about Lost. Lost. Yes. Yeah. We we later find out that he's you know Tank slash Dozer's brother-in-law and the only member of the Nebuchadnezzar to get replaced in the interim six months. But basically, he's talking to Morpheus, and Morpheus is saying, you know, if you're gonna be on my crew. I may not be exactly certain as to your reasoning for joining us, but I ask you have to believe in me. And they're getting ready to head into the Matrix to attend a very important meeting. I will, slash I do, which actually comes up again later on. Which is kind of really cool. Um, Morpheus constantly asks people to have faith in him, trust him. Um, and I feel like, you know, a lot of these characters are audience stand-ins. And by the time it comes back around... Link saying, I do, as in he trusts him, the the audience is right there with Link saying, yeah, we trust Morpheus. Let's see what happens next. Yeah, yeah do what he says. He's a good guy. Mm-hmm. In as many ways as Neo isn't sort of an audience stand-in for the 
you know, the first movie. Link does kind of act as a bit of an audience standard for this movie, this idea that you kind of have to buy into it a bit to get the full experience out of it. Yeah, totally. And they played into that with the um, the side content extremely well. Um, for anybody that played Enter the Matrix out there or has uh, seen the events of that story, that ship's operator fills a similar role for the audience. Yeah, we're going to get into the events of Enter the Matrix a bit. Yeah. And the Animatrix, they both kind of fit into this mm-hmm. the, the next scene of the meeting of various pilots within the Matrix. Right. Because this is where we're first introduced to Niobe, mm-hmm. who features in a starring role in the Enter the Matrix game with Ghost. And... Uh, it, we're introduced to any yeah. any other pilot, right? Because I remember watching this first and being like, where, what, all these what the fuck is going on? Like, who are these guys? Why are they all look like they're in the Matrix, but they're in Zion, but they still have sunglasses and cool coats and stuff? They don't look like homeless people. <laughs> What's going on? That That is one of the things that kind of bothered me about this one is is it seems in retrospect that it made the first movie like such a smaller story. Yeah, almost as though it um it retcons the the um, intimate nature of the Nebuchadnezzar's crew being the ones fighting for a future. And now we have an expanded group of freedom fighters. Yeah, a whole city full of freedom fighters to fight for the future. Yeah. Yeah. And then you find out that... I thought it was like... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and then we also find out with the other pilots and stuff, like, not everybody buys into Morpheus's belief of the prophecy and the Oracle. Like, some people think he's just this kind of kooky cult leader. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was my understanding in the first movie that it wasn't like a huge mega city. It was just like, yeah, we're like... A little group of village, pe- like just a couple of people. I didn't realize the scope of it. Like, no, it's a bunch. It's a whole civilization fighting. Well, it kind of makes me wonder because I mean, Morpheus does mention that they they freed more minds in the past six months than they have in the past six years. How small it was before they found Neo. Right. Oh, maybe they've just been popping them out left and right now. Well, they also had the the first um, self-realization or actualization, um, self-actualization in The Kid. Yeah. Nobody had freed themselves from the Matrix until The Kid was able to do it. Mm. That's kind uh, of is that expanded upon anywhere? Because I really didn't. That one's in the Animatrix. Right, because I was... I, I literally had no idea until you just said that. I know they you mentioned know, it in something, but... The annoying kid in Zion who... Um, no, I know, who, I know goes, who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, he's got a little but side I, I didn't, I didn't know that he freed himself from the Matrix. Yeah, he speaks with um, Neo uh, through his computer. I, th- I believe it's Neo, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And while at school, he is vi- visited by agents and gets a similar call as Neo... Um, he ends up being chased by agents through this school all the way up to a roof where he leaps and his body in the Matrix is killed, but he in turn frees himself in the real world. I mean, nobody makes the first jump. Yes. <laughs> he right. did. Uh, Michael Carl Popper is the kid's real name. Uh, it's shown on his headstone at the end of uh, the kid short. Mm. Oh, yes. And speaking of the Animatrix, another one of those segments was aired before The Matrix Reloaded, which is the uh, last, was it the last flight of the Osiris? Final flight of the Osiris, Final same, same idea. Yeah, and this is sort of the, the inciting incident for these two movies, and the, the meeting that's, that's going place in The Matrix Reloaded right now is the Osiris receives this intelligence about a, a sentinel army 
digging down into the core of the earth to try to get to Zion. Real quick, correction. Yep. Um, they yep. went up to the surface of the real world and saw the, um, oh man, I, I don't even remember how many um, robots it was, but it was in the thousands, yeah. tw 250,000 sentinels. It's in my notes. Um, they're tunneling towards the underground city of Zion, expected to reach within 72 hours. So they hit the surface, they see this, they know that by broadcasting the um, the warning about this threat, all of the machines will be tuned in to their position, thus meaning that in order to inform all of the captains of Zion, they had to sacrifice themselves. Mm, yes. They being the crew of the Osiris. You know what I call that? I call that an opening scene to your fucking movie. <laughs> well, the weird thing was. is... Because well, as like Bob the... pointed out, it, it was aired before the movie uh, was shown in theaters, and this was the first of the Animatrix shorts to be released. The rest of the Animatrix wouldn't be released for a few more weeks in June of 2003. In, in terms mm. of supplemental material and, and how close this relates or isn't related to the story, this is like that broadcast is sort of second cousin to this movie because yes, you have the, the broadcast of the Osiris for the warning, and it's picked up in a dead drop by... Niobe in the video mm -hmm. game Enter the Matrix. Yep. And then relayed to the main cast of the film in this scene. So you have those two degrees of separation between it. Yes. I think that's uh, I, I see what they're trying to do. I just think it's maybe too too soon. People aren't as connected to the weren't as connected to the internet in 2003 as they were in 2021. Oh, it's very much so, to me, a, it's a precursor to me of the whole Fortnite event telling you what happens between The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I had no clue that there was even a Fortnite event that told that. Yep. Yeah, it told you about wow. the, I think, the Emperor's resurrection and that. And the only reason I know about it is because people tell me how ridiculous the idea is. I hate uh, everything right now. I didn't know that. Either. Yeah, but well, at least you can, you can thumb your nose in the air and say the Wachowskis did it first. This is true. I mean, okay. along that similar line, though, I feel like the information they have, the knowledge that the Sentinels are coming is important, but how they got it is not really as important to the events of this movie. It's sort of like how we didn't really need Rogue One to set up a new hope. Sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right. You don't really need that information, except for the fact that this is what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. And that said, if you do get a chance, if you're listening and you haven't seen those scenes from enter the matrix like the live action cutscenes and stuff they filmed for it it's great to check it out it's sort of it, it kind of is almost another matrix film yeah there's a whole hour of actually acted um movie cutscenes within that game hmm. you get to see so many people kiss monica bellucci let me tell you <laughs> this is true <laughs> really just so, two but well three if you count neo with this movie I was going to say, you've got the Trinity, except Trinity doesn't kiss her. All the... <laughs> no, Trinity yeah. doesn't. No. It's Niobe that does. Yeah. Yeah. So back to uh, to Reloaded, though. Well, apart from the stuff, but this is going to be a thing from here on out, because this stuff kind of does bob and weave up out of the, the, the narrative here. Um, we have the that information sent out about the Sentinel army coming to Zion. And you have some great, like, standout line reads. Like, I love that when Morpheus walks in dramatically, because, of course, they're dramatically late to this meeting. Of course. He's mentioning one sentinel for every man, woman, and child in Zion. 
that sounds exactly like the thinking of a machine to me. It does. It makes perfect sense. Oh, well, you know what? You know, I, there's something in that information I completely overlooked. One sentinel for every man, woman, and child in Zion, meaning there's a total population of 250,000 people in Zion. Oh, back, yeah. That lines up. That's some good. Once again, some good symmetry there. And you have um, a, a quick knock at the door. We find somebody later revealed to be Smith drops off a, uh, an earpiece for, for Neo and then kind of the leaves the scene. Yeah, well, like that's the thing. I mean, his coming does kind of herald the approach of agents, which Neo's able to kind of pick up on via his, you know, connection to being the one. And uh, yeah, Smith basically you know, says Neo set him free, and in so much as giving him that earpiece represents that. And we have Neo fighting agents and the other uh, op- operators, or sorry, the other pilots, kind of dispersing and heading to the various exits mm-hmm. and there's something that kind of bugged me a bit about watching neo fighting agents in this movie um and it's not really like a choreography thing it's just an ideological thing like why is he still bothering to fight them like why is he still bothering to engage the agents on their terms mm. yeah just fly away or beat them all with one hand or that's the thing because combat and, and the Matrix even exists on the concept of rules, and Neo's whole thing is by being the one, he exists outside of those rules. Mm-hmm. So it does seem kind of dumb for him to go, you know, let's punch face and see which one of us drops first. Yeah, because he he's already aware of the fact that he can beat these guys. I think it's really there so that um, we're given the information that these aren't the same brand of agents we had in the first movie. The whole upgrades mm-hmm. line. Yeah, And just like a computer program could be upgraded and look the same on the surface uh, under the hood, it, it could, you know, fix all sorts of bugs that stopped it from running before. Mm, so these, these are stronger agents. These are mm-hmm. 1.1 agents. Sure. I guess I could also yeah. kind of see it as in storyline as like a stalling tactic. Yeah. Because if he's fighting them, they're not just blowing up and taking over new bodies and just coming right back anyway. Yeah. And running, keeping them busy. And that begs the question, how much of what they're telling us is stalling tactics? <laughs> right. <laughs> but That's the, the one thing I do like about the, the fight scene is it's a decent fight scene with no uh, CGI. Mm-hmm. So the other fight scenes are epic, but a little, a little wonky. Especially by today's standards, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there have been a couple. And yeah, watching those, those three agents fighting the O, the choreography is well done. A three on one fight always looks cool. Mm-hmm. Especially with Neo having that you know flowing cloth jacket with him to kind of accentuate his movements there. And then, I mean, Neo ends up kind of buying time for the pilots to escape, does his Superman thing, starts flying through Zion. And uh, after he takes off, we find out that there's more than one Smith this time around. Smith's also got some upgrades too. He's able to clone himself. Mm-hmm. Have we? Did we see that, or uh, did he just walk up to himself? Uh, this, I think, this is where he walks up to himself. So I know he can do the little hand hand thing, but that's the thing. He can clone himself by overriding somebody else. He can't like make a new a new entity for himself, but he can copy his code over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Neil goes to head back to the Nebuchadnezzar. He makes one quick check 
at the Oracle's old apartment before coming back because you get the idea that he's kind of lost as to what exactly he's supposed to do, and, and they haven't heard from the Oracle in a bit either. Yep. And the purpose of that meeting that they all just fled from was not just to warn the captains about the um, the assault coming for Zion, but also for Commander Locke to tell all of the ship's captains to come back to Zion immediately in the real world. And they can't Which, say that they didn't get the message. Yeah, it's Everyone that. was there. Come on, guys. Something that almost never happens. And of course, Morpheus, being who he is, tells him that, hey, you know, we need to keep one person back in case the Oracle tries to contact us. Yes. And in this case, it was the Caduceus's captain um, who um, who suggested his team stay back in the Matrix. Just to see. Yeah. Just to see what happens to Morpheus when he gets back. Yes. Yes. But wouldn't the same thing happen to them when they eventually return to Zion <laughs> for disobeying right. the order? Well, they're you not seem... dating Homeboy's girl, or they're not the ex of Homeboy's girlfriend, so they have a little more That's leeway. True. That's true. Yeah. Well, speaking of of, uh, of of Locke and Zion, I mean, we're back to it. We finally get Zion, and yeah, to me, it's a lot bigger than I was expecting. Uh, yeah, did it's... you... Go ahead. See the something I didn't realize that the the tower for Zion is like a mini matrix. It's not the matrix, but there's people jacked in to a computer system all in white. Yeah. And so it's not the matrix, but it, it's their like little one of the tower that lets people in. And it looks looks pretty cool. Because it is very similar to the construct program they had set up in the first movie where they get the guns and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, right, it, it they're all fun. seated in the same kind of like doctor's office type chairs that they jack people in while they're seated on them. Once we're back in Zion, I mean, everybody's got some business to get to. Morpheus has to go see Commander Locke. Uh, Link has to go see his wife, Z. And uh, you say the worst line that anyone's ever said in a movie almost. <laughs> it's <Ooh>. up there. <laughs> it, yeah. And, and Neo I'm tries cool to get some... Neo tries to get some 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 quality time with Trinity, but first he uh, he runs into that you know the kid who we mentioned previously, and he has some some petitioners for him that ask for his blessing and kind of try to present him with some offerings. Uh, mm-hmm. If there's any sort of standouts in those three scenes for you guys, let me know. I'm I'm ready just to kind of keep going. Yeah, um, just sort of the idea that heavy is the head that wears the crown when mm-hmm. Neo returns to. Zion and he's about he goes through the elevator and he reaches the the floor that that his room or home are on and it's just flooded with people bringing him gifts and asking for effectively his blessing as though he were Jesus um there there aren't many many more overtly religious overtones in this film or series of films than that one right there and it's yeah, like it being any kind of celebrity where you're hanging out with all your buddies, but they're also super badass. So you don't have a feeling of, of difference. But then you go to a bunch of regular people who look at you in awe and it's like Morpheus would be like, no, it's just Neo. That's just, I mean, yeah, he's, he's the coolest of us, but we're all cool. Most people are like, no, that's, that's Jesus. And you're Morpheus. Yeah. You're, wow. Well, and the disillusionment that Neo must feel seeing all these people begging for help 
And in his mind, he's he, he only wants to spend time with Trinity, but he's also wrestling with the dream of her death. And if I can't save her, how am I ever expected to save any of these people? You know, the futility of omnipotence. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things in his scenes with Trinity is you kind of pick up that kind of almost trying to keep himself emotionally at arm's length because he's not sure what to make of his dream, but also they're deeply in love, which they show in this movie by having them be just just all up on each other. Well, it's all of it. Yeah, it's just being it's just being an attractive main character, and, uh, mm-hmm. and you just you just gotta gotta put your hands on each other. <laughs> Plenty of pu- public displays of affection. Oh, I did want to say one thing about Commander Locke when we do meet him is the fact that everyone plays him up like this hard-ass authority figure, but his authority is so easily circumvented that he really only seems to offer token resistance to Morpheus. Yeah, um, everybody's afraid of him, but then once the council decides who should speak and inform Zion of why they're all gathered, they overlook Commander Locke in favor of Morpheus because... He probably has a Morpheus probably has a better way of informing all of these people of their impending doom than Commander Lockwood. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Morpheus, he's he's just got this this aura about him. Well, I was watching this. I said to Courtney, I was like, I want to see a movie. Now there'd be no drama in this movie, but where there's a guy who wants to do something, he's like, "Man, I need to do this. It's weird," and the authorities go, "Yeah, you've been right a lot of times. Go do it." But it seems in, for a movie, you have to have conflict. So the guy above him always has to go, nope, give me your gun and your your badge, Morpheus. <laughs> so you're saying that Morpheus is a rogue cop? Pretty much. He very I much is. But him. in this case, his, his commander can't actually do jack shit to him because the council. And also, he like Locke exists. Pardon my language. Locke is in this movie just to, just to put up token resistance and get cucked by Morpheus. Right. That, it is a good feeling, it. though. I don't know if you've ever had a job where, like, most of my jobs, my bosses do not like me, but their mm. bosses like me. So it's kind of like you feel untouchable. I'm mean, like, well, yeah, you don't like me, but your boss right. loves me. Oh, almost yeah, as though Commander Locke is like, fired, but... this Morpheus dude's going to replace me next year. Mm. Well, he's got to be on his toes because his girlfriend uh, still still has a little thing for him. He should feel that fear though, because I feel like Commander Locke couldn't even freaking command anything. Like he if if somebody else if another actor is in a scene with him, like don't get me wrong, he's portrayed by a good actor. Mm-hmm. But in this film, if Commander Locke is in a scene with another actor, he disappears. Yeah. Completely. He's totally Wall forgotten paper. about. We have no reason to believe that he's the fearless commander of anything. So Speaking about forgetting Commander Locke for Morpheus, we are at the um, a scene that's kind of infamous for a lot of people when they think back on this film is the the giant bacchanal, the giant rave, the giant party in Zion at the heart of the Earth's core where it's warm. I always where... forget that it's in this movie. My mind mm-hmm. wants to put it in the third movie. That's the thing with the way these are structured and how short of a time span these films take place over. You you would think there'd be a closer proximity between this celebration of Zion's potential last days and the actual machines coming on them. Yeah, because they spread out the machines 72 hours into this long film, and there's no real day-night cycle to let you know how close to those 72 hours we're getting. 
Oh no, they scorched the sky. Yeah. They should have a big clock. Like a big red digital clock that's counting down from 75. Yeah, I would appreciate that. Zion, DEFCON level orange. A oh, better fuck, I slept in after the orgy. We only got <laughs> 10 minutes left. I mean, even yeah, later in the film... In after the orgy. <laughs> even later in the film, they actually have to cut back to a scene of somebody watching for the core to reestablish that that's the active threat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, so. that's happening. Yeah. Look, don't forget this audience, and they give a quick wink. <laughs> but, I mean, the rave consists of, like, I think three main things. You've got... Morpheus's speech to Zion Town and the truth, this is Zion and we are not afraid. You have the massive party going on, and then you have the uh, Neo and Trinity love scene. Mm-hmm. Do you think it hurts to touch the ports? Um, you know, it would have to, but you kind of get used to it. Just wondering. I say, well, because I had... For for the listeners in the audience, I had, you know, I'd gone through dialysis for a couple of years and I had ports on me. Mm. They they weren't literal machine ports. They just like liquid stuff. But yeah, yeah, it would at first, man, if anything happened, those are raw. But I think after a while, you do kind of get used to it. Mm. And I can okay. only hope that in this case, they don't get involved in any of the sex scene. <laughs> I mean, if you got to use it, that's nice. It's like Chekhov's port. They showed us a hole in the body. Now that we have a sex scene. Hmm. <laughs> that's it and initially that scene I thought was incredibly awkward but I think the problem is is the slam and techno soundtrack yeah does not really mesh well with the scene song. yeah no and I don't know that the Wachowskis ever grew out of the shooting of this scene if you've ever seen their show Sense 8 it's almost as though every other episode has a Matrix orgy scene within it Mm. that's weird because to me when i was rewatching it this time i took less issue with it because i'm like hey they've got like 72 hours to live might as well throw down on a huge party before you got to get to you know get busy living before you get busy dying right and nobody's even been told how zion is going to get rebuilt after this destruction yet so yeah <laughs> party on guys party on wayne do party it on, Garth. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, yeah, watch it this time. It makes it a bit more sense. And uh, while it's happening here, you've got sort of the scene of, of life and the affirmation of positivity. And got to take a, a quick second to cough if someone wants to. Well, they're celebrating their lives. Like Morpheus told them, we are going to shake this cave like never before. Could you imagine what the, the censors on these uh, sentinels were thinking with all of this rumbling, all of this commotion and everything going on while they're drilling? It's got to all appear, the heat. Yeah, and it's got to appear to them as though that they are assembling a force. Um, <laughs> oh, they are. In about yeah. nine months, they'll be assembling a couple of forces. That is for sure. I did like the the way that they have the music emanating from a lot of percussive instruments rather than being... I mean, at least it starts with a lot of uh, more organic instruments, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty they good diegetic soundtrack for it. Too fancy. And then you got he, D, DJ Morpheus really behind it all, blah 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 blah, just banging. I love Morpheus's outfits. Oh, <laughs> like Burning Man, <laughs> just a huge sentinel helmet, just cut off sleeve robe, just behind a fucking turntable. DJ Sentinel. <laughs> and, and while that's going on, uh, you have a couple of of runners trying to leave the Matrix and. Uh, 
one of them gets stopped and we see someone get assimilated by Smith. Yes. We later figure oh, out God. that they are Bane. Smith I think, are they carrying, us. they're carrying the invitation or the message from the Oracle, I think, or the invitation from the Oracle? Yeah, they're, they should be at this point carrying the invitation from the Oracle saying yeah. that the Oracle has returned. She wants to talk to Neo. Um, and because the Caduceus was left behind, uh, one of the crew members, Bane, uh, meets with Smith and, like Bob just mentioned, is assimilated by Smith. Which is really cool because now Smith has the ability to travel to and from the main world or the real world, excuse me. Yeah, he's got a body for meat space instead of just existing no. as a threat in the Matrix. You can't mm -hmm. just log out to escape him. Do you think he know that that was going to happen, or if it was just a like a trial? I wonder what what happened if I assimilate someone who actually exists outside of the matrix. It's a great question. This is the first successful mm -hmm. attempt we see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's an asterisk <laughs> next to it. Yeah, and I think the first time I watched this movie, I don't even think I clocked that, and I was just like, when they get to the real world, I'm like what's this fucking guy's problem with neo like yeah I, I just wasn't it wasn't a fight scene that i was i was like oh yeah he got him but i didn't realize the implications of him assimilating him he looks it doesn't help that bane's actor looks kind of generic he does he almost looks as though uh he's the same actor uh victor or excuse me hugo weaving weaving yeah portraying uh bane from certain angles. It's very just confusing. with fake facial hair thrown on him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got the same face aura. Uh, yeah, we've got cutting back to the real world, back to Neo, who's not still not able to sleep. He ends up having a kind of a late night chat with the counselor Hammond, who who kind of has had his back the whole time. And oh, they start getting about the machines, right? Yeah, they're talking about. Right. Um, they need us to live. Works, but we need them. They need us. And then the nature of control, mm -hmm. which becomes sort of a, a subplot device after this conversation, because then um, by the next morning, the the message from the Caduceus about the Oracle wanting to meet with Neo again is being handed off, and then they're quickly going back into the Matrix for Neo to meet with the Oracle again and the theme of that meeting with the oracle is neo realizing that oh you're just another program within the matrix why if you're here to control the the other programs in the matrix why should i trust what you have to say yeah why would you be helping me right yeah and that's that's kind of another part of the i don't want to say problem but there's a few things in the movie that are just like hey Either you're going to trust me or you're not. That's another binary choice, like the first movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I, I obviously, they throw a little nod in with the Oracle eating candy, and it's obviously just based off of the red pill from the first movie. <laughs> yeah. And there's there's another even less subtle nod to the first movie right before this, where Kid comes up with the um, real-world spoon to give to neo that was from one of the potentials yeah. from the first film and then so that that is where all of the the real world is just another simulation within a simulation theory comes from but we're, we're not going there no no i'm yeah I, I throw that in the garbage for now but yep. one of the things that always bothered me in that scene is how loud is the kid because you have bane like 
inhabited by Smith, and he's going to go up to maybe stab Neo or something before they leave for, to go see the Oracle. And you hear, hey, Neo, in the background, and that kind of gives away Bane. And it's a full 10 seconds later, the kid's like, hey, Neo, and he's coming down the hallway. <laughs> After the kid gives you know, Neo the spoon, and he goes to talk to the Oracle, he has this little you know, stuff with Seraph to kind of meet the challenge response quota as the, sort of the verification process to go see the Oracle. Mm-hmm. And they are talking about, you know, whether or not they can actually trust her as part of the system. And they do a good bit of world building here. They establish kind of three big things. They establish the existence of other programs to yep. run things in the Matrix. And that if you hear about ghosts or, you know, banshees and things, those are programs. If they become obsolete, you got two choices. You can either become deleted and return to the source, mm-hmm. or you can become an exile. And we find out that the the source the source wow is where the path of the one ends. Yep. Mm. And the oracle explains that she herself is an exile, while explaining other um, exiles such as the the keymaker and the Merovingian, and that the path, like Bob just said, of the one is to return to the source. We don't find out more about why he must return to the source until the end of the film. Right. Did we we didn't talk about the um the good. A nice table fight scene before. Oh yeah, his his fight with Seraph. Seraph, I didn't mean to yada yada through that. That's a good. This is a good. This is another good non CGI practical fight scene. And they initially wanted Jet Li to play Seraph, but he did not sign off on it. Which really, poor, poor us. I think it worked out all right anyway. Well, yeah, he's good, and I guess I read that he apologizes to everybody upon seeing them. Yes. Something like yeah, that. something that, that happens in both Enter the Matrix and in this movie. The whole, um, uh, first I must apologize. For what? For this. And then he fights you. It's Pretty part of his program. Well, yeah, so he fights, um, I forget the character's name, but the actor is Roy Jones Jr. Mm-hmm. He fights Niobe, Ghost, and Neo. All of them are apologized to right before and right after he explains in, in some way, shape or form that he doesn't know somebody truly until he fights them. Mm. Which I can kind of respect. It works a bit better in a world like the matrix. Yeah. Where, you know, like somebody is trying to, to, to brute force their way into seeing the Oracle. He wants to make sure that, if they can brute force their way, that they are deserving of the presence of the Oracle. That's kind of the feeling I got. Maybe it's not, maybe I'm not putting it the correct way, but yeah. Well, all of his, all of his input sensors are fight based. So he's like, I have no idea what you are. Okay. We're fighting. Okay. Okay. uh, Analyze. And here we go. And that definitely fits within the, the Vorthos of the world that is the matrix. (laughs) It's a very program-oriented way to look at things, yeah. It's sort of like when a computer asks for an authentication key, but instead of numbers and letters, this one accepts only fists and kicks. <laughs> you punch the shit out of the program. Correct. So, okay. And then Seraph has a pretty important... Um, he has a pretty important role after, after Neo talks to um, the Oracle. He's trying to hurry the Oracle along because he can sense um, Smith's approach. And we see the return of Smith, not Agent Smith. He's not an agent because that earpiece he handed off at the beginning of the film shows that I'm no longer connected to the rest of these agents. I am something else entirely. 
and we get the first actual you're right earlier it was uh smith just talking to himself we see the first time where he's actually making clones of himself with the the many smiths fight that happens in this park right after neo talks to the oracle yeah if neo is the one smith is the smith yes uh, they're they're definitely yin and yang. Yes, sir. Sort of an anti one, and they do have kind of a cool exchange about the idea of freedom versus purpose. Because the whole first film, you had that idea that Morpheus had that there's no fate. You know, like like Terminator, there's no fate but what we make. But if you have a purpose, are you truly free? Mm. Which that's I don't a think great we question. Can, we can't answer yeah. that here. We don't have right. the, the resources to do so. But oh, it's an interesting argument. Right. And and Smith tries to, you know, jam his programming into Neo and override him, but Neo's the one, so of course that's not gonna work. But he thinks it works at first. It's right. getting pretty close. Is this the first time um this fight with Smith where it dawns on Neo that there is another outcome and it's simply to just fly away? Oh, because at the end of this he just leaves. Yes, he cannot oh. defeat the Smiths. So he contextualizes a third outcome, the one where I just leave. Can we can we talk about the Burly Brawl? Because that's also kind of stuck out in my mind since I've watched this movie the first time. Yeah. Is that what I think, yep, yeah, it's called the Burly Brawl. In fact, the the um internal name, the fake name that they gave for the production materials and film for this uh, was the Burlyman. Oh. which I think is an old-timey old movie. But this is where you have Neo fighting a whole bunch of Smiths, and like 90% of the Burly Brawl to me is fine. There's just a couple scenes that really stand out with the visual effects and looking too rubbery and the bowling pin single... sound effect. Oh, <laughs> yeah, where he knocks them all down with a staff. Mm. Other than, other than the, the faces of the Smiths, being CGI, I understand that, but there's not really a single move in this fight scene that Keanu Reeves couldn't have done himself. Maybe the agents flying away could be CGI, but right. With I think a, a lot of wire it, work. I think a lot of it was just trying to get more creative with camera angles. Yeah, which I feel like wasn't necessarily important to the sequence, but no, I'm just disappointed because I love staffs and once he grabs that it's just cgi galore so there was something i noticed about the staff i was debating whether or not to bring it up but during the yeah. scene where he's using the staff and it goes full cgi if you look it's not a tube it's still like a cylinder it's still like a solid cylinder and you can tell they just put darker circles on both ends to make it look like it was hollow inside yeah. <laughs> there are some uh you know, like early days of CGI blunders that, yeah. that happen within this movie and the next one. And that's the thing. When I try to think about the Burly Brawl initially before rewatching the movie, that's all I could think about were those sequences where like Smith and Neo look like used sex dolls. But no, that's <laughs> just a couple of standout moments that they try to spotlight, which they maybe yeah. shouldn't have. But and they definitely the hit the Uncanny good. Valley. Oh, yeah. Hands down. Mm-hmm. But like you and said, once. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was going to state that you know once once Neo realizes at the zenith of the fight that there's you know too many Smiths coming after him, he just takes mm-hmm. off and gets out of there. But I do love the fact that just like a computer program, right? So they're all like intensely fighting him. He leaves and they just walk away like 
there's no yep. emotion. They're not like, I'm sorry, oh, damn, he that, got away. It's like, he's gone. That fight was all we had in common, guys. It's like when your family gets <laughs> together for the holidays. <laughs> oh, but they canceled Thanksgiving? Oh, well, bye. We're just going to do our own thing. Your family still get together for holidays? Some of them. You got to have an argument somewhere apart from online. No, not with not us. Our families get together. We're we're yeah, yeah, yeah. There is one thing that did kind of bug me about how many people there are attacking in the Burly Brawl and just how many Smiths there are. Is that's there's a principle in martial arts where, based on angles of attack, there's a maximum number of assailants that can attack someone at the same time before losing efficiency. And I think the number is like five or six. Oh, because they just get in each other's way. Yeah. Like, there's only so many angles of attack to cover. Now, that would be yeah, changed. That, Smith... that mm-hmm. those, that the mathematics involved in all of that is really considering the one. You know, he's kind of the variable there that's like, eh, he could probably take on 20 dudes at once and they could all fit in and fight him. Well, no, I mean, at that point, you have the attackers have a diminishing return. Like, the three stooges all trying to go into the same doorway and getting in each other's way. Yeah, you want, as the bad people, you want five or less to fight them, because, yeah. Well, maybe Otherwise, you end up with a big old dog groups. pile. Little groups of five, and they throw Neo to the other group. They all wail on him, throw him. But, you know, we'd all make yeah. a better agent. Or <laughs> not agent. I mean, the scene itself looks good, and it's effective, but it's just, that's just something in the back of my mind while it's going on. It's mind-blowing when you're, I don't know, 14, 17, however old. And you're just like, oh my god, this is awesome. He's got that, he's, he's up on that pole, like just running across a bunch of agents or a bunch of smiths and kicking them in the face. Mm-hmm. I think it's right after this, though, once Neo goes back from seeing the, or from seeing the Oracle, um, we go back to the council meeting in Zion to discuss how the city's actually going to defend itself against the army of Sentinels. Yeah. Yeah, it's in a big arena style, like. Is and there not again, one captain? Uh, and and of course, I don't know why they're dating. His girlfriend's like, I'll do it. So the idea is that all of the ships would be away from Zion proper, far enough away that they would create a ring of EMPs that the uh, the Sentinels would would fly through and then immediately be disabled before reaching Zion. It's like um, a big shield. Okay. Yeah, and the idea for Commander Locke telling Niobe um, to stay back was that the EMP aboard your ship is not powerful enough to add to any of this. So you're just going to hang tight. So it ends up being that because she didn't have a plan for for where her team was going to sit when the EMP was, was waiting to go off, she decides, all right, well, I'll roll with this plan now that they're looking for volunteers. Ah, she wanted to be useful. If she couldn't be useful this way, well, here's her chance. Right. And so in the movie, the one big problem I have with uh, Niobe's character in just the movie is that she seems to show up out of nowhere. Yeah. It's not until you actually see what happens and enter the Matrix that you're like, oh, wow, she was actually on her way to, like, say, the, um, the, the car scene chase. She was already on her way there when she's able to save Morpheus atop the... The, the trailer we're getting a little i'm getting she's a, little a more she's a more important character than the movie would lead you to believe 100 percent, yes yeah because she does kind of seem to just kind of fall out of the sky mm-hmm. 
and yeah, Enter the Matrix, it, Enter the Matrix does a great job of setting that up, and then also setting up. I mean, Ghost is also with her, but he only really has like two lines of dialogue in this movie. Right. But I digress. So yeah, they have the two ships hang out, wait for word from Nebuchadnezzar. The other ships are supposed to go set up that that counterattack, that that ring maneuver with the EMPs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And back of the Nebuchadnezzar, we have Morpheus, Trinity, and Neo heading to a fancy French restaurant to meet the Merovingian. The chalet or whatever? What's it called again? Oh, uh, his house is the chateau. I don't know what the there actual restaurant is, though. Yeah. Because they the do restaurant... go back and forth with the keymaker nonsense. Yes, I was going to say, the restaurant is clearly in the city whereas yeah. by the time um the merovingian's wife is talking to the lead characters somehow they're back at the chateau which is in the mountains <laughs> up in the i want to say the actual like the alps yeah whatever the simulation world's equivalent of those would be is oh i just assumed it was like part of the key makers bullshit it was just yeah sometimes doors open up to weird places yeah, I like that the Keymaker's one recurring move in this movie is to just get the hell out of there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's got one move and he goes with it. Yep. But yeah, even, even when they're approaching the, the Merovingian's restaurant, Neo notices the code's different and there's just explosives lining the building. Mm-hmm. So fighting's not really much of an option in this area. And we have, again, Neo goes to a place and he has someone tell him a speech and... Uh, in this one, it's, I mean, it's the Merovingian talking about causality, cause and effect. The illusion of choice. Yeah. yeah. These speeches are so fucking masturbatory. Grandiose. <laughs> fucking. I kind of like the difference yeah. between, because the, the Merovingian speech is insufferable, but he's one of these characters that he's not talking to impart information to Neo. He's talking to hear the sound of his own voice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He doesn't care. He, you know, Neo, fuck off. But I will show you right. how much better and smarter and cooler I am. But Neo exactly. being able to see the code gets to see the effect of the Merovingian as he's explaining what he is able to do. So Neo is able to garner a little bit more. I, I don't want to use the word respect because fuck the Merovingian. Um, Insight? But he's a, yeah, in some regards, he's able to get some respect for what the Merovingian is capable of. Yeah, he's, he's able to get kind of that, that, that more direct insight into it. And, you know, we also kind of see, I mean, Monica Bellucci just kind of sits there in that scene, doesn't really do anything yet. She rolls her eyes during the, uh, the Matrix orgasm. The Matrix orgasm cake. Yes, that's another standout. Uh, this is, I think this is the halfway point of the film. An hour and six minutes out of 218. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah, yeah, the Merovingian has uh, uh, programmed that the, this item himself to influence someone's biology and set off a chain reaction in them. And at that point, once he's gone through his explanation and shown Neo that hey, I can do this, he's kind of lost all interest in the conversation, and he's like, yeah, well, you say you want the keymaker, but you don't have shit to give me, so mm-hmm. bye. I didn't even put together, and you know, I don't know if you're supposed to. Where he goes, I have to go to the bathroom because I peed. I didn't put together that he was just going to go bang that lady. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. This is just an excuse. This is all just a game. Ugh. And they're stuck just kind of leaving 
I mean, he's got his goons there. They got the explosives, Morpheus, Trinity, and Neo just go into the elevator and they're about to leave. Kind of not sure what went on. And Morpheus, again, with another delivery. I love how Lawrence Fishburne portrays Morpheus. And he says, what happened happened and could not have happened any other way. How do you know? We are still alive. Mm-hmm. So it must have been good. Well, right, because the he's still thinking about the prophecy. Well, I'm still with the one, so the Oracle's prophecy must still be good. The one's still alive. Yeah, we're still still doing the work of the Resistance. And, I mean, sure enough, he's right. The elevator stops before reaching the ground floor, and they see Persephone, portrayed by Monica Bellucci, who decides there's, you know, maybe she can help them get to the Keymaker. And, and she they have of, something to offer her. Yeah, they have something she wants. A kiss. Which again, yeah, that's the representation of love in this movie is physical affection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's I weird. Guess I don't know. Passion, I guess. Like, just uh, right. interest in the person, I guess, is the, the distill it down. She just wants somebody to be as attentive as someone who's in love. She kind of does want want to feel something like she does kind of have that kept trophy wipe vibe going on and trinity pulls a gun and she's like what bitch right at the idea of neo kissing uh kissing her yeah physical affection and possessiveness are both how love is portrayed in this movie mm-hmm. absolutely which is fine because that's how love is is in real life <laughs> yeah that's, that's how, how it can definitely manifest and yeah persephone says hey if Neo kisses me and shows me that love and makes me feel like I'm Trinity, then I'll get you to the Keymaker. They try one time. Doesn't quite work. And then Neo kind of has it click in his brain and is like, wait, no. Stop before she leaves. And yeah, they he, he gives her the, the kiss she was expecting. Mm-hmm. Which and I will say, I've seen mm-hmm. this movie uh, maybe four times in my life total, but I've seen just scenes with this lady probably 20 times in my life there's a lot of pausing rewinding uh, when it first came out on dvd that's all i'll say definitely it asks an important question would you make out with monica bellucci to fulfill your destiny you know i might <laughs> who's saying only... no to that question right <laughs> only to fulfill my destiny to me that would be my destiny so i don't know <laughs> wait this isn't where it ends i thought this was the prize of all prizes we go further from here okay cool Cool, cool, cool. I yep. I still struggle to understand Persephone and the kiss. Why is it that all of these other programs she needs a kiss from? Yeah, yeah. If they were if they were people, then you could use the argument from earlier, which is there's just two hoity-toity rich people playing games with each other, right? Like, he cheats on her. She knows he's gonna. They're gonna stay together. She kisses him, like they're just making. But if they're programs, what's right. the motivation for a program? Exactly. What's the program? What's the mo- excuse me? What's Persephone the program's motivation for needing other people to impart their physicality on her? I'm going to to put it out this notion, and feel free to throw bricks at me. Uh, it's control. Okay. Their first nature, as you can see, is tending toward violence. And yes, if she, if if Persephone allows them to give into their violence, then yeah, they're giving into what they want to do. 
but by making them kiss her, engage her on her level, that's a different level of control because I mean, all three characters, when they first initially hit the situation are like, no, and there's a degree of resistance and Mm -hmm. in some cases, a violent response. Right. Mm. No, that's as, that's as good of an idea as, as anything. Cause I, I literally have nothing for why she wants <laughs> these other pieces of code to impart their code upon her. Yeah. And even the name Persephone is trying to, and I know we're not trying to get into like yeah. reference circle jerk romance. The name Persephone does uh, refer to the wife of Hades in the underworld mm-hmm. in Greek mythology. Um, but it doesn't seem like this Persephone has any desire to escape for six months and come back. It seems like she's kind of comfortable in her role here, despite the fact that she may have some misgivings. I can feel that. But we end up having, you know, Persephone use one of these keys and opens the door to take them from the restaurant to the Merovingian's Chateau, where we find out that there's werewolves. <laughs> Not literal and werewolves. Werewolves and but vampires. there should have been. With... With all the CGI in this movie, I would have loved for in the upcoming fight scene with the werewolf, if it's just one of those dudes just kind of werewolfed out. Oh, then it would have been better than, you know, another dozen guys wearing suit jackets and or leather jackets and shades. Yep. Or those white dreadlock techno dudes turning well, into the ghosts from the Lord of the Rings. Are we talking about the twins or are we talking yeah. about, okay. I thought the twins were different from the werewolves and vampires that were other exiles because that had been mentioned. Yeah, they by are. Oracle. They're a different group of people. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, I think they're a reference to, to Irish. I think mm. the twins exist as a parallel to like the, the Celtic Banshee. That Yes, that makes sense because they, they use a scream at some point, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they have the ability to go incorporeal in that. Um, but yeah, this is kind of. It would have been nice to have an actual legit werewolf to kind of break up the monotony, because you do kind of find out that these programs existed as previous iterations of agents, I guess, or enforcers. That instead of going into exile, or sorry, instead of being deleted, decided, hey, let's go work for the Merovingian. Mm-hmm. And. I mean, he meets back up with all of his goons in the chateau. They they get the uh, keymaker, and Neo tells him just to get out of there, and that he'll he'll handle the Merovingian and his his goons. And you get kind of um one of these the hint at something you want to build to in the movie where the Merovingian says, you know, handle us. Your predecessors had much more respect. And you're like, what? Yeah, predecessors. <laughs> And from here, yeah, we split into two different action sequences. Mm-hmm. The first one is this this fight Neo has versus a bunch of uh, Merovingians. I don't want to say goons, but his muscle, you know? One of whom is a uh, uh, one Tiger Chen. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Man of Tai Chi, correct? Yeah, that's, the, that's what I know him from. Yeah. I like this fight sequence. I think it's got really good uh, usage of weapons. You don't see a whole lot. No. I mean, it's not really too too CG heavy either. And this is where the, the twins first phase through the floor to get the key maker. Yeah, as, as cool of a concept that the twins are for bad guys, just in execution, they suck. Yep. Yeah. I felt like they were 
banking on it being like, man, this you're going to be this movie's version of the agents. But man, as much as you want to try to sell me on a character, don't make it a white guy with white guy dreads. Right. And straight razors, like I'm surprised I didn't see these guys at like comic conventions or steampunk conventions after this. Oh, right. <laughs> All yeah, we, we get that chase sequence. We get those those twins just phasing through Neo and whatever nonsense that has going on, and we get into the uh, the highway chase. Yeah. Yep. So the keymaker is with Morpheus and Trinity, and they manage to escape the building, and they are told to flee to the highway, which is supposed to be suicide in the Matrix, because the agents are really good at controlling the highway, I guess. My thought was that the, the highway leaves you very exposed. Yeah, there's no way to hide. Forward or back, and that's it. Yep. yep. There's no exits. Or there's no hardline exits there. And mm-hmm. the on-ramps and off-ramps, like, they're going to know where you're going. Yes. Oh, it's and like when you're agents... on a road trip and you have to go to the bathroom. The yeah. The your enemy. Yep. And then the agents can, can just uh, jack into any person along that route and stop you. Mm-hmm. I have a weird feeling about the um, the highway sequence because it's awesome, and then it goes on for too long. Yeah, and then it loops back around to being awesome again. Yep. Like you, you get everybody involved. We've got Morpheus. We've got Trinity. We've got the Keymaker, the twins. Niobe comes back. The new agents come back into the film. Mm-hmm. Morpheus yeah, gets to be a badass. Is- Mm-hmm. But so Morpheus was always like, you know, run. But he's kind of holding his own against this even more powerful agent in this on top of that semi. I know he has to be safe, but I think I it has to do with the presence of Neo. And whereas before Neo, not everything is possible, right? But once yeah. he saves Neo, he brings him out of the Matrix, he sees Neo in real time do things that nobody else can do. So if it's possible for this program to do these things, I'm a program while I'm in the Matrix, I should be able to do these things. So Neo exactly. gives him uh, an, a stat bonus, stat boost, just from being awakened. Oh, oh so yeah, Neo's definitely You got to see it to be it. Right? Like a, like a high tide raises all ships. If they know it's possible to take on agents, then yeah, they're going to be... Yeah, I'll allow it. So. I think even journey. Trinity falls into that line of thinking as well by the end of the movie. Definitely. Even even in the first movie where she sees him dodge, you know, the the Desert Eagle shots from an agent yeah. and she shoots him in the head and it's like, we know it's possible now, and you know, the mind makes it real. Yeah, you moved like them. <laughs> and uh I mean any other highlights you guys want to take on here apart from I, for example, I, I like the part where the agent is on top of the car and you have one of the twins kind of guiding Morpheus' shot to like aim assist to try to shoot this agent. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. I um I really like how that scene wraps up. You forget that Neo is flying on his way to back to Morpheus, uh, and he arrives in just the nick of time to swoop them up as he's flying. Um, but you totally forgot that the fight leading up to it, he's in the mountains, they're still at the city, and he's got to fly all that way back to them and doing his Superman thing. He gets there just in the nick of time. And it's like, oh, yeah, Neo, he was fly. That's right. Oh. Who was previously was foiled by a door. Yeah. And then Especially he his way out of the problem. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I can't fault him there. It's a problem he doesn't punch his way through. He he yeah. reasons through it. And yeah. Tracks them down. And this is the part actually, because he scoops up um, Trinity, Morpheus, and the Keymaker. I believe. Oh, no, it, uh, Trinity. And Neo scoops up Morpheus and the Keymaker out of the uh, ensuing explosion at the end of the sequence. And this is where they cut back to reality, where someone's looking at the machines making their progress, just to remind you what the actual threat is. Yeah. Yeah, an hour and a half into the movie. Don't forget. They're still drilling. And we go back to sort of a throwback sequence with the old red chair that Morpheus is on, and the Keymaker fills in neo and morpheus about the prophecy the path to the source and how to fulfill it yeah there is a building inside this building there is a level where no elevator can go and no no stair can reach this level is filled with doors these doors lead to many places hidden places but one door is special one door leads to the source i'm glad you have that written down because all i have is three objectives Three captains, three ships. Yep. And, you know, I uh, I wrote that down because when the Oracle mentions the source, it is almost like this mythological, like, what is the source? Almost in the same way you should be questioning what is the Matrix in the first movie. We're being told about this thing we've never seen, and it's a character who has more knowledge than the audience, imparting that knowledge onto the audience, and we all grow together with the story to figure out well where where are we going we're going to the source what's the source i don't know but we'll know when we get there yeah it is it is spoken with in kind of this this almost religious reverence mm-hmm. sort of like as much as i you know don't want to say it because it just sounds so similar to the force in star wars it's the the beginning and the end of things yeah and in terms of a program, it makes complete sense because all of the code for all of these programs, whether we're talking about the inhabitants of the Matrix or the Matrix itself, is being disseminated from the source. <laughs> and I mean, they, they get their objectives. You have Niobe, who um, her goal is fleshed out a bit more in the Enter the Matrix game. But effectively, they need to take out the power to the area because they need to shut down the alarms. Otherwise, they will blow up. They need to take out the um, computer backup system, and then they need to actually enter the door to the source. And all of this has to be done within a period of, what is it, two or three minutes? Uh, 314 seconds, because I'm assuming that's a reference to Pi. Oh, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Just over five minutes. Yeah, just over five minutes. So you have, who I'm going to call you, you have Captain Niobe taking care of uh, the power plant, I believe. Yes. You have the uh, secondary objective, which is the computer system, who I will be saying is is being uh, attacked by Captain uh, Expendable. And you have Morpheus yeah. and the Keymaker accompanying Neo. Uh, Niobe flies the logo, so it's the Captain of the Vigilant that's hmm. uh, taking out the, back, the, um, the backup system. Which, I mean, they could probably afford to be a bit more vigilant. Niobe (laughs) does manage to take out the power plant. However, the vigilant is attacked by a sentinel Mm -hmm. hurling a bomb. And, uh, yeah, you see them. They they get taken out in real life. And and inside the Matrix, they just drop. Yep, right there in that building. Uh, Trinity was staying in the Nebuchadnezzar, the ship itself, because Neo told her, do not enter the Matrix. 
He's remembering the dream from the beginning of the film where Trinity dies and he's attempting to save her. The only person with the information that the vigilant has fallen, well, there are two people, Link, the operator, and Trinity. So Trinity goes into the Matrix to try and take out the, the backup system that the Vigilant was originally trying to cripple. And again, it's a situation like in the first movie. Neo thought he was going to go in by himself to retrieve Morpheus, but Trinity's like, no, you need my help to do this. And it's another situation where, where Trinity's needed to get things back on, on track. Yeah, she is the completed half of the one. The one, Neo, realizes he's nothing without Trinity over and over and over again. Yeah, and while they're in this current state where you have half of the plan in motion, Neo, Morpheus, and the Keymaker are headed through these back doors, the the, the back rooms of the, the source. Uh, but they're stopped by a, a swath of smiths. Yes, in the back doors, right. um, when the Keymaker opens up the back door to allow them to go in, they are met by the smiths. Um, the Keymaker again flees. <laughs> Um, and then opens a different back door behind the fight that's happening between Morpheus, who's almost assimilated by Smith, the Smiths, and Neo, who saves Morpheus from, from being assimilated. Very um, Scooby-Doo. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Or Spider-Man pointing to... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And again, it's another situation where there's... I feel like there's too many bodies to operate effectively unless you're literally just trying to like choke them to death with Smiths. For that narrow of a hallway, you are certainly correct. But sure enough, Neo grabs Morpheus and uh, flies through the door. Mm -hmm. Keymaker ends up closing it behind him, but not before being shot approximately. This is just a loose guess on my part. One billion times. <laughs> yeah, he's got quite a... He, he looks like a piece of Swiss cheese, doesn't he? He just turns around and he, you know, tells oh. Morpheus where to go, tells Neo where to go, hands him a key and checks out of the movie. Yep. Perfectly and content with his purpose. The movie. What's that? Next, we get my favorite scene in the movie, if not the whole trilogy. Oh, oh another that... another masturbatory uh, yes. conversation? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, if you want to lead the, the discussion on the discussion, the talk with the architect, I've got some feelings on it, but if you want to roll with it for a minute, feel free. Yeah, um, the door that Neo is shown by the keymaker is the door to the source. Inside the source, when Neo opens the door, he's met by a man watching TV screens. This man is the architect. Um, the architect starts to talk about what brought Neo to the door. And the audience is also told at the same time that this is not the first time the one has entered these doors. Mm -hmm. um, the architect explains to Neo that... Um, well, he, first of all, he's quicker than the other ones, mentally quicker. He picks up on the things that the architect is telling Neo as he's being told them, uh, specifically and the, that... And the fact ahead. that he doesn't answer Neo's question. I was going to say specifically <laughs> that Neo does not answer the question. Or excuse me, no, the architect doesn't yeah. answer the question. He doesn't answer Neo's question. question. Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, we find out that the one is an integral anomaly of the Matrix, yeah. Uh, this integral anomaly is the the individual who is able to exist outside of the rules that have been laid down by the creators of the Matrix. Um, we learn that one of the creators of the Matrix, as we know it, 
this version of the matrix is the architect. The other is the mother of the matrix to which Neo asks the Oracle. <laughs> this is never cleared up. The architect just says, please, as though he's insulted at the idea that the Oracle could match his intelligence. A um, scoff, a proper scoff. <laughs> yes, a very, very proper scoff. Oh, um, please. <laughs> I think he is talking about the Oracle. Um, and the Oracle kind of clues us in with her conversation earlier. She effectively says, I'm an overseer. I know all of this because I see the entire path of the one. She oversees the entire matrix and can see the start and end of each bit of code within it and thus knows the outline of that path for the individual that embodies those codes to follow, right? I feel like... I feel like the architect is scoffing at her being called the Oracle, like the name. Yeah, yeah, because it imparts an idea that she has a wisdom outside of what she is designed to know. And she is designed to know all of it, thus cannot be an Oracle, thus cannot know the future, just is reading to you what is going to happen. She's not seeing mm. the future. She's just able to see it all and able to read to you what's going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like a predict a predictive text generator. Mm -hmm. You've seen the patterns and analyzed it before, and you're just kind of counting on them to happen that way again. And now back to the scene with the architect. Um, at the at the point where the architect tells him he is quicker than the other ones, Neo starts to question, "Well, what other ones?" And the architect informs him that five versions of Neo have come before. This is. If I'm understanding correctly, this is not including the perfect matrix that was the first matrix. That would make sense there because was no one on that one. If I heard everything correctly, there wasn't because that was wiped out by the machines themselves. Because well, because the one was wasn't necessary. Yeah, the one wasn't necessary in that situation. They, they right. woke up on their own. So because we're watching the path of the sixth one, and we know there was a matrix before any of them, we are watching the seventh iteration of the matrix and the path of the sixth one. Um, and then we're told a little bit more uh, by the architect about the perfect matrix that Smith alluded to in the first film. Um, the other five destructions of Zion then become sort of a point of the conversation. Uh, and the architect explains that the machines have become extremely efficient at destroying Zion. The last time they did it, they did so within 72 hours. Mm. He seems to have a level of pleasure in delivering that information as well. Right. As though his beautiful creation keeps getting bundled by that pesky dog and those teenagers. <laughs> right. Very more, more effective. Do. Yes. Um, so he then belittles Neo by telling Neo that you are simply a bug within the Matrix. And we're not talking about a Bethesda bug. It's not supposed to work like that. Right. Or maybe this we is are. A, this is an intentional design flaw, almost like the, the Death Star port. <laughs> yeah. And the purpose of this bug is that when it is activated it being the code of the one, when that code is activated, it has a specific purpose. It is to be returned to the source. For anybody that followed the Animatrix, the source is zero one. The source is the machine city. And inside of the matrix, the simulation, the source is represented by the room that the architect is housed in. So right now, 
within the matrix, Neo is effectively at zero one, the machine city. We don't see him physically go to Z zero one until the next one. I'm getting ahead of myself, yep. but the uh, the architect has some important information to to impart. The source disseminates the code and reinserts the code of the one into what is known as the prime program, which I took to mean as if the simulation were a computer itself, it needs an operating system. And so the prime program would effectively be uh, the matrix's operating system. Okay, so it's almost like an OS or like a firmware update. That, that's what I kind of got out okay. of it, is that Neo returning to the source is, yes, exactly that, a firmware update. <laughs> In order for the Matrix to be reset, the One has to pick 23 individuals from Zion, 7 males, 16 females. The purpose of those 23 individuals is to rebuild Zion. So now Neo is given as much information as the architect wants him to have. And he's told that his purpose is that this must be done or with the destruction of Zion, the human race will go extinct. He's told that your hands are tied, you're handcuffed, you have to return to the source or not. If you return to the source, you're destroyed, your code is disseminated back through the matrix, everything is reset, Zion is still destroyed, but it will be rebuilt. If you fail to do this, Zion will be destroyed and there will not be 23 individuals to allow Zion to be rebuilt. Yeah, they're, so they're start the Matrix Zion. and Zion or doom the human race? Sorry. The rebuilding of Zion, it's like a, uh, well, Neo, we're going to empty the trash bin. It's getting yep. too full. Yep. Yeah, it's the, the problem of uh, starting fresh with humans and the fact that they need to have the uh, illusion somewhere in their mind that they can reject this false reality. Right. And now there's something interesting that I think that happens to Neo when he goes into the source, he has touched the source. By accessing it within the matrix during his visit with the architect, Neo, as the code, has now, um, Neo has now become one with the machines. Hmm. We see the effect of this at the very end of the film. See, yeah, I, I took this as, as a mirror of, you know how Smith, was he mentions that something may have copied from Neo onto him. I feel like, yeah, Neo, upon entering the source, a part of the source went with him when he left. That's 100% where my, my logic came from, that when Smith was touched by the one, part of the one was left within Smith, disconnecting him from the rest of the agents and him becoming himself an anomaly. Yeah. The exact same thing happens to Neo when he enters into the source inside of the matrix and we've got the behind neo and behind the architect you have walls of these monitors displaying various different thoughts or potential mm -hmm. outcomes of their discussion of neo mm -hmm. possibly having different things he's saying different actions until they kind of all reach the same conclusion when he's given this choice and the architect himself kind of picks up on the idea that rather than feeling a love for humanity as a whole neo's love unlike the other ones, is very specifically toward Trinity. Yes. And not only does Neo choose to forego reinserting himself into the source, choosing 23 individuals, he chooses, in all of his possible iterations, 
they all choose Trinity. They all choose to go back into the Matrix, forget what the architect says, we're going to save her. Because Trinity is Neo's tie to the real world. If it weren't for Trinity, he's just got this dude who thinks he's God telling him what to do all the time. There's no grounding. Right. She she kind of, uh, yeah, is his mentor in the real world. Like, no, come right. on. Get Trinity is the movie. heart of the trilogy. She's the two. Or the zero, I guess you could call her, if Neil's the one. Yeah. <laughs> she kind of keeps him grounded. She doesn't really have the same weight of expectations on him. I mean, she does obviously believe in him and the prophecy. But it's it's a belief more than it is an expectation. She wants him to be him, and and you know they're in love. Mm-hmm. She cares about the man, not the myth. Right. Yes. I keep I keep wanting to say she cares about Thomas Anderson, but no, Thomas Anderson doesn't exist. No. And uh, yeah, as as Neo leaves and he makes his decision, because this is where you know in in the other part of the Matrix, Trinity rescues or, or you know shuts down the backup so that Neo was able even even able to get into the source and she's beset by us uh, agents and ends up in the part where she was in the first bit of the film where she gets shot while falling out of a window and Neo makes the decision to save her and he turns to the architect and says if I were you I would hope that we don't meet again and the architect just casually goes we won't hmm. <laughs> and yeah Neo uh bursts out of the room with such energy and fervor that he causes the source door to almost melt and explode. Yeah, I'm curious how much of that building melted with Neo flying out of there with that much tenacity. Fervor, fervor oh, yeah. sure. All of it. And then as he's flying to Trinity, he's playing Katamari Damachi, where he's just picking up <laughs> all the yeah, random the whole world. The world. <laughs> He's literally bending the map of the world so that he doesn't have to walk there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the one of those shots I thought looked awesome. This is probably the yeah. best flying shot in the movie. Totally. Mm-hmm. I think sure it's really enough. cool when he makes it to Trinity. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, sure enough, he makes it to her on time. He's able to get her out of the air. Mm-hmm. Um, she still she does get shot, has been though. shot, though. Yeah. That bullet yep. happened. Well, they're in they're in a bunch of code, and even Trinity acknowledges that Neo returns the favor that that she imparted upon him at the end of the first one. Um, but Neo sees through the the illusion of the simulation and sees Trinity in her code and is able to not only remove the bullet from her body but massage her heart to start again. Yeah. Well, it's just a bunch of digital info interacting with other digital info, so mm-hmm. there's no reason why he shouldn't, if he's the one, be able to do something. Right, but we are told in the first movie that there is no body without the mind, so I am a little curious how you know Trinity stays alive within the real world after dying in the Matrix if her brain is dead. Maybe her – she didn't go – well, I don't know. Did the show her totally going dead and he pretty much resurrected her? I mean, kinda. Because if she starts, her if she's still, yeah. But you think maybe her in her mind, her belief that Neo is so awesome that he can do things kept, you know, 
her mind was thinking he was going to save her. Like, oh yeah, he's you know he's definitely gonna. So her body didn't. Uh, it's possible, or you know, it's. I, I hate to use this as a Deus Ex Machina, but it's possible that's part of him touching the source. It's like maybe he can suspend her code oh. temporarily, like that. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point that I had overlooked. Because it very much does, you know, change him in the way that it also changes the world around him. Mm-hmm. And he ends up, yeah, saving her from falling, removing the bolt, like you said, and bringing her back to life. And they're able to disconnect and go back to the real world. And Neo kind of has to break the news to Morpheus about, you know, the prophecy of the one being another system of control. Yep. I mean, Morpheus doesn't believe him because he's built his life around this. Right, and that would be that would be a very soul crushing thing to have happened. You know, you built your life around this entire idea, and then the idea was all a lie. Morpheus has to protect himself. Yeah, talk about a, a bitter pill to swallow. And, and then they get this. Like, um, just Morpheus, like even if he swallowed that, be like, well, yeah, there's a lot of ones, but you're like you're like the one one, you know. Which actually, funnily enough, ends up be being right. true because he's. Right. he's He's the one one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and while they're trying to process this, they get the, this information. There's sentinels, a sentinel approaching, staying out of EMP range and carrying a bomb. Yeah. Hurls a bomb, much like the one that took out um, the vigilant. The vigilant. There we go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Sure enough, it, it takes out the Nebuchadnezzar. Morpheus, Neo, Link, and Trinity are able to get out of there kind of just in time. Because Neo senses the approach of the Sentinels. He is now one with the machines and can feel them coming. Yeah, Which is crazy to, to me. Yeah. Because he can... now has Neo powers outside of the Matrix. Yes. Yeah, he's able to, um, to shut down the Sentinels remotely. In a similar way that he shut down, or while he stops the bullets in the first movie, he holds his hands out and they stop. Which could be another reason why Zion is just another program. Yeah, um, that this this scene right here, where just after the Nebuchadnezzar is blown up and Neo stops the Sentinels, is another point toward the the people who believe that the real world was another simulation within a simulation mm-hmm. which I, I i mean people kind of harp on him taking the sentinels out but it's not like it doesn't cost him the act of doing this sends him into a coma yep right so it's not like he's super powerful like yeah i waved him away no it's that took everything that i had yeah he had to detach his mind from his body to do so Right. And then when they're picked up by the ship, the hammer, uh, the medical crew on the hammer explains that Neo is still alive and they've only ever seen brain activity like this for somebody who is jacked into the matrix. Wirelessly. Yep. So now, yes. So now Neo has wirelessly accessed the matrix. And we find out what happened with the EMP plan. Yep. It did not work because somebody... And they're not sure if it's an accident or intentional. Yes. Yes. Specifically on the ship that uh, Bane Bane was on. Yeah. Set off the EMP prematurely, which shot the other ships out. And uh, the Sentinels just basically cleaned them up. It was a slaughter, not a fight. Yep. And the only survivor on the Caduceus was Bane. 
We see Bane's body unconscious next to Neo's with a to be concluded. Uh, so how do you feel about the Matrix Reloaded? Not bad? Not bad at all. It, uh, it's just like any other middle movie, which a lot of action. I don't know. Not a lot of story, but also a lot of story. I think there's too much to be contained in it. I mean, it could have been four, which it's going to be, yes. but you know, this trilogy yeah. could have been a four. Yeah. It could have been a quadrology. Mm-hmm. Quadrilogy. I really like this one, especially when you compare it to other middles of trilogies. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to overlook um, because so much of it goes to left field compared to what you were expecting coming out of the first movie. Um, and I think at the beginning of this episode, Bob, you said a lot of it is about subverting expectations. And maybe yeah. that was the point all along, is that this is a sequel about subverting sequel expectations. And I think that maybe a moral of the entire story is that the hero always has a choice. Mm-hmm. The choice for these heroes and these other stories you're used to is to be the hero. And I think that once we get through movie three, movie two makes a whole lot more sense based on the idea that it is just there to subvert your expectations of what a sequel to a hero's tale should be. Because by the end of the third one, the entire trilogy subverts your idea of what a hero's tale should be. I've said this before with you guys in conversation. I've said this, you know, uh, in my notes here and other people, um, the biggest thing for the matrix reloaded for me is the original Matrix film feels like the movie the Wachowskis were born to make. The Matrix Reloaded feels like a movie they were paid to make. <laughs> yeah, because it all wraps up. Per- like the first one is a movie and could have been yeah. a movie with no sequels. This one, if you just watched this movie, yeah. no fucking idea what's going on. I mean, not that you would in a, in a sequel, but... I mean, I like this one. It, it has the elements. It has the action. It has the story. But it's sort of like you know how you ever like mix up like protein powder and milk, and like you don't mix it quite well enough. So occasionally you get these mouthfuls that's just way too much powder. Yeah, that's definitely the scene with the architect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even I, though it's it, one of my favorite scenes in this whole trilogy, yes, it, it's definitely way too much powder. It's a crucial scene on its own, and I mean, yeah, I so like, I do appreciate. The Merovingian is it's perfectly blended, but you just drank too much at once. No, the Merovingian <laughs> scene is chewing aspirin. <laughs> Does it make you orgasm at least? Not at all. Not yeah. if you're doing it right, no. It makes you recoil <laughs> to the point of projectile vomiting. I gotta chew less aspirin, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, if you uh had to give it a score out of five, we'll go from uh we'll go Rick JR then me. Uh oh. So, Rick, Uh-oh. what's your score out of five for? Actually, you know what? We'll what go JR first, and then Rick, and then me. There okay. we go. Um, it's really hard to give you an exact rating because I feel like my appreciation for this film grows every time I watch it. Yeah. That there are things that I missed with each each subsequent rewatch. I just grasp a little bit more. At this point mm-hmm. in my life, I'm ready to say that this movie is a four out of five. Hmm. Four out of five. All right. So I don't remember what I gave the Matrix. Oh, we all gave oh, it a five. Yeah, <laughs> five is across. That was a fifteen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if the Matrix is a five. This one, um, 
I would say 3.5 out of 5. Yeah, it, uh, me, I mean, my initial gut reaction from just remembering it was a 2 out of 5, but upon re-watching it, I've watched it twice since yeah, our discussion of The Matrix, and Same I actually kind of look forward to watching it. I look forward to watching it the second time. Um, mine's a 3.5 also. Hmm. Wow, it's gone point up in half. my estimation. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the issues I thought I had with it were um, things that I was expecting in the anticipation of the sequel. The thing is, the Wachowskis were in kind of a no-win situation because no film they could have made could have lived up to the expectations someone would have had for a sequel to The Matrix. I Nine agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, yes. so I find you had it, 10 years to write the sequel? Sure. What I kind of appreciate is the fact that this came out, and between our two discussions, the film Halloween Kills came out also. Yes, which is an, another one of those situations where you have this great film and then you have this sequel to it, and the sequel couldn't possibly live up to the hype. Now, granted, that one might get its own thing, and I'm telling you, I would not give Halloween Kills a 3.5, but... <laughs> no. It just struck me as an interesting thing to think about that and The Matrix Reloaded as it relates to another trilogy, as it relates to The Last Jedi, mm. um, another film that was about subverting expectations. So well, Yeah, but just to, just to subvert. Right. Like, I've seen those films and, and how they are even divorced from the marketing and the, uh, the hype for them. And I see The Matrix Reloaded, and I'm like, you know, I was a bit too harsh on this one. I definitely yes. was too harsh on this movie as a teenager. Um, and even like, like I mentioned uh, when the announcements about matrix four came out, I still, th- this was about a year ago. I still had no clue what the heck is going on in the matrix. Like there's this trilogy that I just can't grasp the story of preposterous. No, no way. Um, so I'm very thankful that I went through and rewatched it all in the manner that I did because yeah, there's a cohesive story there. I was too blinded to see it um, as as a, a teenager. However, as an adult now, there's there's certainly there's a plot. There's a beginning, a middle, and end. Even though the middle is extremely convoluted, no matter how you slice it, yeah. yeah. There's there's certainly stuff going on that follows a point A to point B structure. Right. You just have well, to gents- unwrap it yourself. It has been an honor discussing the second film with you. Before we, we sign off or shout anything out, I want to do a quick plug on my side because we are doing a sideshow mm-hmm. uh, for Movie Buff Romance, Bob's Crypt of Tales, where I'm going through the series Tales from the Crypt in reverse order, given sort of a shorter form breakdown and discussion. Just my point of view of the episodes of the series. Which, with, and what I might add, um, is a total banger of an intro song. Definitely, that was that was uh, some some MIDI music provided by my buddy Tim from the band Bathroom of the Future. Oh, that's who did. Ah, never mind. Horrible track. <laughs> I'll pass that along. <laughs> but yeah, they're going to be shorter form episodes, closer to maybe ten to fifteen minutes, just kind of going through it. But as far as the main feed goes, guys, we're talking next time. We're wrapping this bad boy up for now. We're going to re-enter the Matrix for the Matrix Revolutions. I mean, I don't have as high expectations for this next one, but we'll see where it goes. I think that you're going to have a better takeaway this time around than you did when when you gave it a one out of five. The Matrix Revolutions I watched in theaters twice because I was sure I was in a bad mood and it could not have been as awful as I thought it was. I Mm -hmm. very specifically remember you wanting to go see that movie. Yeah. And I had a... 
a bit of a knack for asking people for change at lunchtime in high school. And you're like, JR, I need money to go see the matrix. And I was like, well, I got all this change. I asked people for here you go. Yeah. Nice. It paid off. I can't remember if, if I, I think I might've seen it with you the first time. Um, I don't remember seeing the third sequel in the theaters. So it's possible that you were okay. there. I just don't remember when or who I saw it with. I remember seeing the second one and being like, screw this. I am done. Right. I saw the third one, uh, the midnight showing, and I think it was one of, one of the Steves, either Steve Flood or Steve Hernandez. Good dude. It's good. Pretty good. Good guys to catch a film with as well. Yeah. Right. And this next episode that we cover, my favorite part is going to be at the end where we talk about uh, the Matrix Four. So yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to postulating on that. I Just love something for you. I love that we've all managed to get so distracted off of the original point, which was just, hey, there's a Matrix trilogy or tr uh, trailer that just dropped. Want to talk about that? I think we should talk about these other three movies first. First. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, because a lot of that lays the groundwork and the weight of the expectations on my side of what I expect from the fourth movie. That That is right. 100% where I approached the, yes, let's talk about all three movies first. That is exactly why. Because I think that there are things going on in that trailer that Unless you're you're talking about the one being the dude that resets everything, unless you know that whole storyline, I don't think some things in the trailer make much sense to you. Yeah, and his code being reintegrated into the source, uh, hey, less no. than voluntarily, perhaps. Hey, sorry, but Wait, I got that's a, it. I got what I thought the movie was gonna be. I got I got a lot, so we'll <laughs> save that. Awesome. Yeah, I can't. We'll wait. try not to make this one uh, a month wait. Hopefully, we'll get this one out in probably two weeks from now. But thank you very much for listening, and thank you so much, guys, for joining me and talking about this movie. Uh, for movie no buff romance, uh, I've been Bob. I will, and I still am Jr. I hope you all have a great night. <laughs>